Welcome to Bad Patient. I'm Robin Donovan. I'm Laura Marker. And we are two non-medical, non-experts taking an, an unreasonably deep dive into this week's health news. This week's words are avoiding the gym, breath test, phone app, and gratitude. Dude, I wish that some people would avoid the gym. <laughs> not to be like that. I'm trying really hard not to be someone who gets annoyed at people for going to the gym. But today I went to the gym and it smelled like farts. And, you oh, know... That, that was my bad. <laughs> I'm not normally someone who would bring up such a topic in a recording. But it just... As I was there, more and more people started coming. And there were more and more levels of offensive smells. And by the end, when I was, like, doing my, like, cool-down stretching, I had to, like, sit in a corner, like, wedged between two machines because, like, even the warm-up area was, like, overrun, and I was just like, this is a lot to handle. So intellectually, I just want everyone to go to the gym. And practically, I wish that we could find a gym big enough for everyone to go to. Oh, well, you know why everybody was there. Because it's their New Year's it's resolution. The first week of... Yeah. Yeah, it's the first week of January, so everybody's like, "I'm going to the gym." Yeah, and Damn, you're, I know you've it. been there, and so you, and you're like, "Blah." Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Normally, right. the <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to say that normally the people who pay for the membership but don't go are essentially subsidizing my quiet, pristine gym experience. So really, I should be grateful for them for eleven quiet months instead of angry at them for one crowded month. But what can I say? Sometimes I'm just cranky in the moment. Well, it doesn't sound like you have gratitude. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm supposed to be finding joy in the everyday. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Do you, are you ready for the first article? Yes. Okay. So it comes from the Washington Post and it's, you really, really want to go to the gym, but still avoid it. New research may explain why. Do we need new research to explain so, why? I can explain why. It's hard. Here. And sometimes it smells a little bit like farts. <laughs> well, there's a new study uh, from the University of British Columbia that suggests the real obstacle for standing in people's way, getting active, isn't their lack of motivation, time, or energy. It's their brain. Oh. So they are contending that our lizard brain was designed to avoid expending uh, energy, unnecessary energy. And so when you go to think about to the gym, your brain actively works against that because it's a lizard brain. So you have to fight it. So they documented this internal struggle with a group of researchers um, from different universities. And they studied 29 participants using uh, the EEG, uh, which records brain activity, electrical activity in the brain. They were all young adults, some of who were already physically active and others who had a strong desire, and they had them use computerized avatars and move them towards physical activity or away from them or towards sedentary behavior and vice versa. And so when they moved their avatar towards the uh, simulated exercise, their brain like kicked up and so they they had a it was it was a little bit harder. So even when they, like, sim it was just a simulation of going to the gym, like, they weren't even actually going, their brain was like, no? Yeah, apparently. But I thought there was that whole thing uh, where, like, you get endorphins from working out, and that's addictive, and then after a while you want to go. But maybe if, maybe if you don't normally go, it's a problem. Right. 
So as they move towards the exercise image, for example, the six-fitter gear riding a bicycle, the EEG data showed the brain was working harder, almost as if there was an automatic brake that was automated. <laughs> like a parking brake? Hmm. Yeah. To be like, hmm, hold up. Okay. Um, I mean, granted, they did do this in young adults, so I guess it's more applicable to us. Do you like how I just put us in that young category? I just slid us in there. But it's only 29 people, <laughs> the sample size, so... No, but Judy Buckley, the University of Ackland psychologist, who was not involved in the study, described the research as well done and wonderfully sophisticated. I mean, okay. I <laughs> but she doesn't think it's biological evolution. She thinks it's society evolution. Yeah, that would make more sense so, to me because, like, our brains are primed for exercise like evolu- evolutionarily, like being able to run was a survival skill, right? Yes, but not run arbitrarily because what if you needed to run at a later date? True. You're supposed to like you're supposed to be like saving it up, right? It's unnecessary. It's not they're not doing energy for survival purposes, but just like people weren't just running around the jungle just to run around. They were running from things that live in the jungle that you should be scared of. I can't think of any animal. Mm. Leopards? Leopards live in the jungle, right? Monkeys, orangutans, lizards, iguanas, all sorts of birds. Are we just are we just listing jungle animals? I'm confused. Actually, I zoned I, out I, a little bit. I was, I was trying I was, to. Li- <laughs> I was reading comments was, on the article. <laughs> I was trying to. I was trying to come up with things that I would be running away from in the jungle. Oh well, I and, think. And you listed birds. <laughs> <laughs> And iguanas. Which I think says a lot about you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, actually, actually, ugh, you're going to regret bringing up this topic. But there's this idea that we evolved as runners not only to run away from predators, but also to run toward prey. So there's this idea. Uh, what's the book? The, like, Tara Umara Runners. It's like a these people born to run. It's it's like a hidden tribe. I think it's in Mexico. And of these like people that kind of they live up in the mountains and they can run hundreds of miles and they can like beat most like runners from developed nations, even though they're wearing sandals like made out of old car tires and stuff. Um, it's a really great book. It's called Born to Run. But one of the things I think the idea first came to me through that was that maybe we evolved to be distance runners because we can't, like, for instance, like with a deer or a gazelle, like we can't out sprint it, but we can tire it out. Meaning like we can cause it to keep starting to sprint. Whereas like a human being can just keep running and running, albeit not at, at as rapid of a rate. And so then we can like track it down and kill it. So we like, we would like spend hours running. So the theory goes to tire out the animal. Gotcha. So, well, so the reason why this study was done is that we've paid we've paid copious amount of uh, money and effort to create campaigns and research encouraging people to adopt more active lifestyles, but it's not really doing anything. So <laughs> more than a quarter of the world's adult population, about 1.4 billion people who are 18 or older, are insufficiently active, um, according to the World Health Organization's. Um, in, in 2016. Yeah. I'm insufficiently active. Insufficiently I just active. thought that was crazy. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what that means, but I, I find that I find that. Yeah, why don't they just say that they're inactive instead of insufficiently active? 
I mean, I don't know why we as a society also have become like obsessed with how things came to be and like going back to like what our primal ancestors did. I'm like, our primal ancestors like got life-threatening tooth infections and died in their late 20s. Like, why is this what we're aspiring to? But anyway, no, actually not. But anyway, why, like that's like a real question of mine. Like, why are we obsessed with this? I like the idea of like eating know, whole foods. Why, why is 23 and me like a oh huge thing? Because people are fascinated about their previous themselves ancestors and yeah and it's a form of self-exploration through someone else i don't yeah. know it's also creating this whole problem where people are finding like half siblings that they didn't know existed because you know it's like someone had an affair or you know whatever and then all these people are finding each other and they're like wait a minute and then the parents are not necessarily happy about it did you hear about that well, you should yes but if if sorry you're you're finding more family Yay. Yeah, I think it's a yay for most of the people that find the family. That being said, I don't know. Like, I'm not doing 23andMe unless someone can convince me that it's ridiculously accurate. But if not, like, I don't want data that's, like, there's a 5% chance that it's wrong. Like, I don't know. Plus, I already know where my family came from. That's what you think you know. That's what I think I know. Um, You know, I think my sunburns speak for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's our next story? So our next story comes from CNN, and it's a breath test to detect multiple cancers early begins large trial. So it's a breathalyzer designed to detect multiple cancers. It's being tested in the UK. So there are certain illnesses that have known, like, signature smells. Mm -hmm. So, like... um, Diabetes. uh, Like a... Yeah. And typhoid fever is poor to smell like baked bread. Um... And uh wait, if you have typhoid fever, aren't there aren't there some signs other than other than your breath smelling like baked bread? Like is typhoid fever really like you're completely fine and then someone's like sniff sniff, what's that delicious smell of like freshly baked rolls and they're like, "Oh shoot, you actually have typhoid fever." I don't know. It just made me think of House MD of like, you know, he just yeah. went Yeah. baked bread, it's typhoid. You know, like it just made me think of that. But what they're using this idea is they're seeing if a person's breath could be used to indicate a presence of cancer. Um, So they launched a two-year trial using a clinical device called the breath biopsy uh, to see if they can find out exhaled airborne molecules can be useful for cancer detection. Um, So they're going to use it up for uh, early detection and kind of if, if it raises that radar that maybe more invasive testing should be done. So you breathe into a device for 10 minutes to provide a sample, and they are recruiting up to uh, 1,500 participants, including healthy people, to act as a control sample, um, and they are going to compare the stuff. Yeah, and there's a little picture of a dog in the article, and I think that dogs can already sniff out, like they mentioned diabetes, you know, they're saying there's a related article they have up about dogs sniffing out diabetes, but I think that dogs can also sniff out other things already. So I think this is really exciting. And and I think like we actually already know that like whether or not the device works, who knows, but like that there is, that there is a detectable level of something in your breath indicating certain illnesses is definitely a thing. And I like it because it's not, yeah, an, it's not invasive. Right. So there are some challenges with, uh, Capturing and storing and transporting breath, which I thought was an interesting <laughs> point. Because, like, 
I like I'm Catholic, so like I know like uh, they have different like artifacts or whatever that are supposed to be like saints or whatever, whatever you know. Wait, what? But then I just remember like like they're like you know Jesus's last breath is in this jar or. You know, St. Oh. Paul's last breath is in this jar. Spoilers. I feel like I've seen, like... Not in there. Jesus, or Elvis's last breath is in this jar. Like, he died alone, so I'm pretty sure that's not true. Like, you know, like, kind of the thing, so... Yeah. But it just made me think of, like... <laughs> it just made me think like of, like... Relics. You're walking around with a jar of people's breaths. <laughs> I know. It's always a little... It's always been a little, like morbid to me that some of those european churches will be like they have like the arm of a saint and i'm like i don't know if i it's like this is a good person so they die and what you rip apart their body and like each limb can become a church i'm like i maybe let them stay in one piece and just and just have the idea of them be part of founding the church you know yes i don't know why we have to have a literal um, piece of them Heads up, if I die, please don't piece me apart. I don't like it. Cool. I'll do that. Uh, keep that in mind. Even if they put you up for sainthood, sainthood I'd be like, nope, Robin has to stay in one piece. Unfortunately, uh, yes. She's good. <laughs> I'm all set. <laughs> Thanks for offering. I'm good. Yeah. I also, okay, this um, is like not totally related, but I also think we need to do more of giving people keychain breathalyzers. Because there's all sorts of things your breath can tell you, and whether or not you're drunk is like a really important one. And I feel like it's 2018, and it's time for us to figure out a better way to avoid drunk driving than just turning to a person who's had a couple drinks and saying, are you good to drive? And then they say, yes. And then you say, are you sure? And then they say, yes. That's always what happens. And like, how do you know? You know? I just, I hate that. Right. I hate that. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, so yeah, this is kind of in that vein of trying to be more proactive and finding it. So for a lot of these cancers that they're going to be testing for, almost half of the cancers are diagnosed at a late stage in England, um, according to cancer research. And, um, they're trying to, um, increase the availability of these kinds of tests and then also allow for early detection to help save lives that way. I like it. I like it. I also like that there's a keychain breathalyzer available for like 25 bucks on the Amazon. Yeah. How accurate is it? Well, I don't know, but it got four out of five stars after 501 product reviews. So apparently not that accurate. Now there's a better one, but it's $130. So depends on how much you feel like you're drinking and driving. Yes. <laughs> how much of Slash, a margin of error is your life worth i mean <laughs> apparently right now zero dollars we should just give everyone narcan and a keychain breathalyzer and the world would be a safer place yeah seems like a great idea to me all right you ready for the next article yep so the next one comes from ap news and it's detecting depression phone apps could monitor ting teen angst <laughs> okay <laughs> this is like, not news these angst. things have been like bouncing around forever yes like is it like new ones yeah it's good though it's good like it's a good thing it's a good thing to be reporting on but it's also good for people other than teens yes but that's like who they're they're looking on so they're using um they're testing experimental apps that are using artificial intelligence to try to protect depression episodes or potential self-harm um so they are looking at 
Um, they're looking at a lot of different things. What were they saying? But it's like really Big Brother, right? Because you're giving like that's people a criticism access to like all of your data. Like yeah, because yeah, like there's privacy issues, um, and then it's also kids, and so you want to make sure that they're giving like informed consent. Um, oh, because the app is, is isn't. Uh, oh, I thought it, I thought that this was one of those artificial intelligence apps where you go in and like you have a little text conversation with it, or you take a little quiz in it, and it like tracks your mood over time. This sound this sounds like you're saying no. this is more of like it just pulls data from your like from your text messages and your social media and everything, and then it's like, Bing, maybe you're depressed. E- I don't like it. Yeah. So. Um- also, look who's involved. Mark Zuckerberg's involved. Like, I guess he's not involved with this project. He's doing the no, whole, but it's, like, so, Facebook so thing. So with Facebook is already doing more proactive detection after there was a live stream suicide. I would Facebook call that. Facebook trained its AI systems to flag certain words. I mean, I would call that yeah. reactive. Like, I get it. They're saying going forward, they're going to have proactive detection. But uh, I would say this is a reactive move since someone already died. Right. But in this year, according to Mark Zuckerberg, this quote, we've helped first responders quickly research, reach 35, around 35 people, 3,500 people globally who needed help. They did not talk about the um, what it was or whatever. So the researchers are combining answers with a passive smartphone data that includes active how active and sedentary kids are and inviting any changes that might link to future depression um i mean i guess i guess i want to just like have a moment of crankiness about mark zuckerberg who's like we're doing this for the good of everyone but really no they're doing it because of like public outcry about the worst of many negative outcomes of facebook in the past few years like He's like, they, well, they've helped 3,500 people, and then they sold the private data of everyone else. So, but they helped those, you know, like, it's like sometimes, I don't know. It would be like, it would be like, like, in organized crime territory, if they were like, hey, we're lowering the, like, tax this month. You're like, but there's still organized crime, like, that this is still a bad situation. I mean, it's not organized crime, Robin. It's Facebook. <laughs> it's a thing that people already already doing and it's using the technology so it's like big data using big data so yeah they're looking at changes in typing speed voice tone word choice and often how often kids stay home as signaling trouble according to the preliminary studies (laughs) there it is i found it what they were looking for oh okay Um, what is it yeah that's they're looking at typing speed Voice, tone, and choice, word choice. Oh, okay. And that's how often kids are staying home. Yeah. But, like, that's, like, passive data that they're collecting. And so, like, part of it is, like, um, kids are, you know, find it a little bit creepy or whatever. But everything is mo- is being monitored, you know. It's just, right. it's just kind of the way of the world. So, like, nothing that you do. And anyone can download the free app. And, like, 2,000 have so far. <laughs> and they are agreeing for research to continuously track things such as typing speed, the number of keystrokes, and the use of spell check. Interesting. So it's not looking at, like, what they're saying, but, like, how quickly they're doing it. How they're doing it. I think the most telling thing in this piece is the participant who said, like you just pointed out, that using the app feels, quote, a bit like being spied on, but with so many online sites already tracking users' habits, she said, quote, one more isn't really a big difference. So I think, like, 
That's something that I've heard in presentations by futurists at conferences and things that in the future, there's going to be way less privacy, but that there will be so much technology associated or so, so much convenience associated with the technology that is taking away your privacy that like we're going to kind of stop caring. Right. I mean, I think that we're already kind of shifting in that direction, right? It's like, well, your phone's tracking you everywhere you go, but having GPS is so convenient that we're kind of like, well. Right. What's one more thing? Mm-hmm. And I'm not doing anything wrong, so what do I care? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Right. I mean, I thought of doing like letting my car insurance company put a tracker in my car for six months to like prove to them that I barely drive and thus like supposedly save a boatload of money. And I haven't done it yet, but like, I definitely thought about it. So I, you know, yeah, I guess we're all going, Mm -hmm. going that way. How much is your data worth to you? I know. Well, and the weird thing is they don't say, let us track your data and then we'll give you $300. They're like, let us track your data and then we'll let you know how much you can save. Because they're trying to test your driving habits and the amount that you drive. So they're not like making any promises. But if you think about it, like they could theoretically say, meh, we're just going to leave it the way it is. Like, They told me that they will, like, no matter how badly you drive, they won't raise your rates because if that were a risk, no one would sign up, but that they can't, like, guarantee anything. And I looked online and people were saying that you get the biggest discount for just not driving and that the app is probably going to rate you as driving more aggressively than you think you do because, like, say, like, someone pulls out in front of you and you slam on the brakes, like, that's, like, a negative, even though there maybe there's not anything you could do. So you avoided a crash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's like, but that's like, all it knows is that you slammed on your brakes. So right. no context. Yeah. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about this, but I could definitely see how it could be useful. And I think the whole trend of like artificial intelligence apps or, you know, things that, I mean, some people are worried they're going to like replace mental health, health counselors and psychotherapists. But I think that there are so many people who are underserved right now that it's almost like not a threat, you know, that there's enough people to use the app and to do therapy in person. Yeah. Can we kind of agree that Mark Zuckerberg's not like the best human though? No, he's not. He is a billionaire just by, neither is Bill Gates. Just, he can't yeah. be, <laughs> he can't be the best, oh, okay. can't be the best person and, and have billions of dollars. It, you just can't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like the Gates Foundation. I like what they do, but yeah. I don't think Bill Gates has lived a life that's free of wrongdoing by any means. No, but like, you know, yeah, I, I just I just don't believe that anyone could make billions of dollars and not have screwed over people mega along hard. the way. Like, it's like the yeah politicians conundrum, right? Like the. Like, I'm always saying yeah. that the the things you have to do to be elected, sometimes I wonder if that, like, precludes you from being what most of us would consider, like, a good person. Right. Yeah. So. So. No. I don't I don't think any of those. Yeah. I've seen the social network. He's, he's <laughs> not a great person. <laughs> All right. So our last article comes from National Public Radio and is, if you feel thankful, write it down. It's good for your health. Um, So this is talking about doing like gratitude journals and being grateful for, for things. Um, And there's been a lot of um, trend to more focus on gratitude. um, And she teaches um, Lori Santos teaches a course 
on the science of well-being and happiness at Yale, which I feel like means that Lori Santos is somehow an adjunct. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, it doesn't say like associate professor of psych, you know, psychology. So I just feel like she's, I, I just feel like she might, yeah. she might be an adjunct. Teaches um, a course, so, a course. <laughs> right. I just thought it was like a very odd way of, of saying it. Uh, no, she's not. I clicked on her name. Oh, she's. She's a professor of psychology and the head of the Slimian College. So hmm. good for her. I just feel like that was a very odd way to phrase it then. And yeah. we are bad on you. Um, (laughs) so gratitude has been endorsed in wellness blogs and magazines and you can find specific journals that, um, deal with gratitude and apps, but it's looking at, um, all of that, but there are some significant body, there's a more growing body of work that shows that there are benefits of gratitude. Um, and studies have found that giving thanks and counting your blessings can help people sleep better, lower stress and improve interpersonal relationships. Um, but there's also like a sticking point. So one study said that like counting your blessings once a week had a positive impact, but three did not, three times a week did not have that. Wait, did, did not so, have more than one or did not have any at all? Asking the tough questions. There have been times, however, counting once a week boosts happiness, but doing so three times a week did not boost happiness. So hmm. um, it suggests that on average, three times a week is too much. Uh, so too much gratitude can be sort of a backfire. Oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> so two is just like a fit. It's it's your treading. You're walking on thin ice or whatever the expression is. Hmm. Yeah. So there's also evidence that it isn't for everyone. Um, oh, good. <laughs> and it isn't a cure all because it doesn't can't make injustice, loss, or pain disappear. Um, so, um, there are definite benefits for it, but it can sometimes be hard for people who are going through extreme struggle because they struggle to find anything to be grateful or they feel bad because they haven't repaid for, you know, they haven't paid back for the things that they're grateful for. So you can feel guilty. So, so I identify with like all things in in moderation. In moderation. <laughs> no, I know. And I agree that, Be like... Be grateful, but not too grateful. Yeah. I clicked on their link. There was a link about, like, some people being wired to feel less grateful. And they're just saying, like, yeah, for some people it doesn't work as well. This meta-analysis found weak evidence for the efficacy of gratitude interventions, but that doesn't mean that they don't work for at least some people. Hmm... <laughs> and people who are already fairly grateful have difficulty increasing their gratitude even further. So we might just be like when we're saying everyone needs to express gratitude, we're like going after the people who aren't wired to be gra- grateful. Okay. This is like getting really tangled up. Do you Absolutely. do you do any now, kind of like gratitude thing? Uh, Not on a regular basis. Not like this. Okay. Not going to lie. I got, I got into... Uh, a rabbit hole. I clicked on Lori Santos name again and pulled up her thing. And then I pulled up her website and she like teaches a happiness course, but her thing is the canine cognition center at Yale. Oh, so I bet like a thing. Yeah. That's okay. her thing. Here's what, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying the reason they did not describe her overall job is because her overall job isn't specifically related to this study or this article. So they gave a detail, a biographical detail about her that was like most relevant to the story, kind of making her look like 
a, a better source or clarifying why they chose her as a source. Because if they were like Lori Santos, like animal cognition researcher, you're going to be like, question mark, why is she here? That makes me feel better yeah. than just thinking that they were just like downplaying her role. Yeah, you I really thought, deep dived it, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I was just like, what is what is her role? So, so yeah. And if you want to hear more about her work, since now I'm clicking on things, (laughs) doglab.yale.edu. Do you think that website's even still up? There's only one way to find out. Oh, yes, it is. You can sign your dog up now if you're in the New Haven area. I clicked on the link. Is your dog ready for... (laughs) Oh, my gosh. For uh, whatever. I really want a dog. Okay. Is your dog ready to join the Ivy League? Absolutely. Do I have a dog? No. (laughs) No. My my theoretical dog is all ready to go. All right. You know what I want to see a study on with dogs is like, is like how, how people decide to get dogs or not. Because I realized that I've been really wanting a dog, but I have all these like reasons not to get one, which is like, well, I'm kind of tethered to coming home every six to eight hours and it might be expensive you know, and like I'm a single income household. Is that the, is that the nicest way of saying <laughs> I'm single? <laughs> I'm a one income household. Yes. You know, and like, and I'm just not sure I'm ready for like a seven day a week, 24 hour a day, like type of commitment. But then I think like tons of people get dogs and like everyone could have my same objections. So like, what is it that gets some people to pull the trigger and make this decision? And then like versus versus me you know because it's not like single people don't have dogs maybe like a ton of people in portland have dogs i bet a ton of single people have dogs so i'm just like i'm on the fence i'm not really on the fence i'm not doing it but like i kind of want to there's a really cute picture of a beagle on the doglab.yale.edu website and he looks so cute oh laura i want a dog like part-time that's the issue or a dog that could somehow impossibly come everywhere with me. Like, like I feel like either a dog that could run with me or, like, a, a small dog that could, like, come in my backpack everywhere I go. Because there are dogs that come that biking with people. I know. They even make – they make cat backpacks for, like, hiking and stuff or biking where there's, like, a little bubble. So it's, like, a regular backpack, but then there's, like, a little push-out, like, plastic acrylic bubble with, like, air venting. And the cat can, like, stick their head out of it so they can see out of the back of the backpack. And apparently cats love them. I know. I know. So do you want to know what my health fascination is? Because it ties into your last story, although it does not tie into the Canine Cognition Center at Yale. Yes, I want to know your current medical fascination. (laughs) So I was thinking about the whole joy thing and, like, just kind of trying it on for size this week. Like, what does that look like? Like, finding joy in the everyday and Laura, I need a lot of help because I really don't know because part of me wants to like be living in an authentic way and part of me realizes that happiness in part is like a choice and I think joy is like very related to happiness. Like happiness in some ways I think is like a really complex like should that we put on ourselves. So I don't know if I love happiness as like a thing. God, talk about something that could be misquoted later. But But the whole joy thing, yeah, I wasn't sure about it. So someone on my Facebook did joy as their kind of goal for last year. And I asked them if they had like any tips. And this person had said to kind of be, actually use the word ruthless about like choosing 
joy. And then like eventually it apparently becomes like a habit of like choosing a joyful path. But I just need help interpreting this advice because my question is, okay, I'm like buying groceries and I'm just feeling like neutral about it. How do I like, quote, choose a joyful path in that scenario or like in any scenario? Like I I can see it with air travel, but other things I'm like, well, it just kind of is what it is. And I feel like yeah, it starts to I'm get like really fake. Sure. I know. Like I'm very, I'm yeah. very confused. <laughs> Here's another quotable quote. I'm very confused by joy right now or like this whole like choice thing. And I have been trying this whole gratitude. Like if I'm in like a not amazing mood. I've tried like listing out 10 things that I'm grateful for. And I feel like that does like lift it a bit, like kind of, I'll be like, I'll list 10 things. And then by the end, I'm like, okay, like, yeah, life isn't terrible. Like those are 10 good things, but I don't want to do that like multiple times a day or it starts to seem like, aren't you just going to be listing the same things over and over again? Or maybe that's fine. So I feel like Joy is, like, surprisingly simple and then also surprisingly complex. I would agree with that. That seems very deep. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if it's deep, but I'm confused. And I also think social media doesn't help. And, like, my beef about social media and joy is that, like, we share joy in the moment, but we share dissatisfaction after the fact, which creates a strange situation where... People's lives have mixed emotions, but we see like a hundred joyful posts and then one post that says, these past six months were really tough and, you know, I was in a car accident and my dog died and I lost my job and blah, 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 and I'm so glad to be on the other side of that now. But if you go back and look at like the last six months of that person's posts, they're all like the same level of cheerfulness as if nothing was going on. So I'm like, well then... And I'm not advocating for like more negativity in social media, but I feel like I'm really curious about why we don't in the moment share these things. Cause I, I could see not sharing it at all saying like, that's too private. I'm not putting that out there, but if you're going to put it out there, it's the timing of it that I find so interesting, you know, kind of after right. the fact being like, yeah, like, I don't know. I'm just seeing all these posts on Facebook and stuff and like finding out all these things, you know, my friends or like things that they went through last year. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that like, you know, they had a health scare or a big breakup or a professional disappointment or whatever. And I'm kind of like, oh, I would have like really liked to have known about that. So I could have been supportive when it happened. So I guess that's that's why we have phones and phone calls and stuff. But it's just very interesting. So... Joy week one, not a lot of progress other than some question marks. (laughs) Do you have a current event you want us to keep in mind when we're thinking about health news or that I should know about? Because all I know about is the government is shut down or maybe it's not anymore. Is it still? Um, Well, it's part of it is um, things are being delayed uh, with reports and stuff because of the shutdown, right? So there's still research that's happening, um, but it's being interrupted. So different reports aren't being released um, in the same timely fashion as they are um, typically. So that I think is the largest um, impact politically that I can think of off the top of my head because for whatever reason, did not anticipate this question. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's fair. 
I feel like after the holidays is when I'm like sometimes at a low point of current events because I tend to kind of pull back from media and screens and, you know, it's like I just want to like spend time with the people I'm with over the holidays. And so I just don't consume as much media or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. I feel like we all need that break at the end of the year sometimes. So speaking of a break, uh, (laughs) speaking of a break, I guess we'll let everyone get back to their lives as if this podcast is just one giant phone call with the universe. Um, But (laughs) before we let you go, we want to encourage you to send your topic ideas to hello at thebadpatient.com. And Laura can use those to pick out stories if you send them. Um, And we want to say a special thank you to our composer for our theme song, Evan Schaefer. Thanks, Evan. You can listen to his music at soundcloud.com slash Evan Schaefer. Until next time, we are Bad Patients. Bye.